Good evening, everybody, and welcome finally to Dracula class number seven. Um, <clears throat> I'm recording this as a, a little bit of an introduction to explain. Um, this class was heavily delayed by two whole weeks in the end, first by illness from me, and then I was traveling the week after. I attempted twice to broadcast during my travel, um, but uh, my, my internet connection was horrible and I had to abort. And then I even on this, at the beginning of this uh, class, which you're about to see, I even uh, had hardware problems, which I finally mercifully figured out, and we then were fine after that. Um, but anyway, just to sort of explain the rough beginning, and for those of you who are following along uh, live to explain somewhat the delay. Uh, the delay was not in the posting of this video, but actually in the recording of this video, as it's, uh, it was uh, two whole weeks. It, it occurred two entire weeks after it was originally scheduled to occur. But we finally have done Dracula class number seven, and I hope you enjoy it, and thanks for watching along with us. Excellent. Very good. Glad we resolved that, and uh, hopefully we have uh, exercised the demons that have been attempting to thwart us. I felt like Van Helsing, you know, going into the room in the corridor and, and, and beating my hands together and uh, asking what we have done that all the power of all the devils should be against us. But anyhow, here we are, and we are totally going to do Dracula class number seven tonight. Um, let me start off with a couple announcements. As usual, a bunch of stuff going on. First thing I wanted to mention, our summer classes at Signum have started. Um, they've, they've started this week. It's not too late to register. If you wanted to, to register for our classes, I've talked about them before. The mythologies of love and sex and inkling, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, Science fiction, uh, inklings in science fiction, uh, you know, that, that, that other class. Um, both of those have started up uh, a really great start so far, but again, still time to register uh, if you wanted to, so uh, please do uh, go and check out signumuniversity.org slash catalog uh, for info on those classes. Um, one other uh, uh, sort of smaller announcement that I wanted to make, but um, we're... Um, this, coming, uh, this coming summer is uh, a new science fiction conference called Escape Velocity, being uh, hosted and organized uh, by our friends at the Museum of Science Fiction. And uh, I think this is going to be a really, really fun event for science fiction people. And Mythgard is actually putting together a panel uh, for Escape Velocity. If you might be interested in presenting with us uh, in the panel, we've put out sort of a, a, a call for papers. Um, uh, for uh, for that, so if you wanted to submit a proposal to uh, to to, to um, uh, to do that, to present with us, we would want to encourage you to do that. So um, if I just sent the uh, uh, link to the posting, the public posting of our call for papers, uh, so you can you can check that out. Um, uh, and uh, I also wanted to remind you uh, that the conference is July one through uh, July first through third uh, in Maryland. Um, anyway, it should be uh, it should be. It should be fun. Um, so, uh, other thing, uh, election time. You should have, if you are uh, in our 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 pool of electors, you should have already been receiving emails uh, from uh, from Ed, our our, uh, our faithful uh, white wizard of the election process, uh, about uh, our next books to discuss together in the Mythgard Academy. Um, we have four nominees, um, which uh, which all look. 
uh, very exciting. Um, oh no, I'm blanking on one. There's The Lost Road by J.R.R. Tolkien, Volume 5 of the History of Middle-Earth series. Uh, so this, the, to, to continue our discussion of the, Middle Earth, of the History of Middle-Earth series, um, there's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. There's The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. And the fourth one, thank you, James, to say nothing of the dog, uh, is the fourth uh, is the fourth one. So anyway, those are our, those are the four nominees. We're going to do two of those. Uh, so make sure to go and submit your votes if you uh, if you haven't done that yet. Uh, it's election time. We should have the uh, I'm not I don't remember exactly when election the uh, the election is closing, um, but it's uh, but it but it's fairly soon. So uh, please do uh, uh, please do. Uh, uh, make sure you participate and help to determine that. If you are not part of that, I invite you to be part of that. We would like you to be a part of that. All of the people who, you know, all of the, the wonderful, uh, generous, and irreplaceable people who uh, donate to help support Mythgard and Signum and what we're doing here um, all get to, to, to participate in the voting process. Um, so I would want to invite you, if you have if you've been participating in the Mythgard Academy classes and you've been enjoying them, uh, we would uh, very much appreciate donations. We run very largely on donations. This is, of course, a free program that we love to have open to everybody and, and you know, our audio and video downloads available for free to the public. Um, we've been, I've been so happy doing these classes now for the last three years almost. To come this fall, it'll be three years we've been doing the Mythgard Academy. And, uh, um, anyway, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's been great, but again, it's, it's, it's all made possible by, by the generosity of our, our listeners and, and participants. So I certainly would, uh, would ask you to consider, uh, giving to support what we do. We would really, we'd really appreciate that. Um, so if you go to, uh, either mythgard.org or signumuniversity.org, uh, you can, uh, you can find the, the, the links for, for donating there. Um, anyway, so... Oh, and of course, the last thing. Uh, uh, happy Star Wars Day, everybody. It's May the 4th uh, today. Uh, and it's so funny, you know, the whole uh, Force Awakens thing has completely revolutionized my house. Now, uh, you know, a year ago, you know, uh, there would never have been a single reference to uh, Star Wars Day in my house. This year, it's like a major holiday. My kids are, like, completely all over it. And they, you know, my youngest son went to school dressed as Chewbacca today. So, it's Star Wars Day. Happy happy, uh, happy Star Wars Day today. Um, so, uh, uh, anyway. Uh, let's actually... Let's talk about Dracula now. Let's do Dracula class number seven. I'm kind of looking around to make sure nothing's going to come swooping in to prevent uh, this from happening. Uh, but let's go back. So, okay. We were talking about Dracula by Bram Stoker. It's been ages. Uh, uh, and so it feels very strange. Tonight we're going to be discussing, finally, chapters 19 through 21. And uh, so we had just last time um, we had uh, gotten through uh, we'd finished the come to the final end of the Lucy Westenra saga um, with uh, with the final uh, the final death of Lucy uh, and uh, and you know her her real death as they come to call it later on and then the beginning of sort of the gathering of the troops uh, at um, at Doctor Seward's place at the Insane Asylum because that's obviously the place uh, that everyone is going to gather together um, so. Uh, 
and and as you'll remember, I uh, began. I did the first stage of my argument that Bram Stoker is uh, really a feminist. Um, uh, somebody, I forget who it was, which of you it was, was uncharitably suggesting before that I was continuing to push off and undermine class number seven because I didn't want to have to go back to that. I totally do. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, so I'm going to do it at the end of class tonight. Um, but uh, but anyway, we're totally going to come back to that. I actually, it's one of the things that I find really fascinating about this book, actually. But um, anyway, uh, one of the things we're going to do again tonight um, is we're going to do a bit more of the um, of the what really happened game, um, which is always a fun game to play with Dracula, as we've been doing throughout. Though, of course, we're at it kind of a different point now, right? Because now we're not only um, able to sort of understand what's going on more than you know in the sort of in the current events, we're also now retroactively able to go back and confirm some of the things that we deduced later on and learn some stuff that we didn't know before to sort of kind of recontextualize uh, some of the things that we didn't have the data to understand. We were given uh, you know enough data in those first four chapters with Jonathan in Transylvania to understand much as we saw of what was really going on, um, you know, back in those those early chapters of Dracula's career in England. Um, and now we can go back and kind of understand many of those things better as they get explained to us, and we come to see... Um, we come to see how the things kind of fit together a little bit more. So let me let me look at one example of what I'm uh, what I'm talking about there. Um, this, of course, is Van Helsing uh, and him giving his sort of briefing um, on uh, the big night when they all finally come together and they make their pact uh, together and everything. Um, so he talks about the strengths and the weaknesses of the vampire. Now, we, we're looking at this, have been looking at this since the first class, and we see here a confirmation of many of the things that we saw before. Um, but there are a bunch of things that we didn't necessarily understand or know about uh, that we learn about here. The Nosferatu do not die like the bee when he sting once. He is only stronger, and being stronger, have yet more power to work evil. This vampire which is amongst us is of himself so strong in person as twenty men. He is of cunning more than mortal, for his cunning be the growth of ages. He have still the aids of necromancy, which is, as his etymology imply, the divination by the dead, and all the dead that he can come nigh to are for him at command. He is brute, and more than brute. He is devil in callous, and the heart of him is not. He can, within limitations, appear at will, when and where and in any way of the forms that are to him. He can, within his range, direct the elements, the storm, the fog, the thunder. He can command all the meaner things, the rat and the owl and the bat, the moth and the fox and the wolf. He can grow and become small, and he can at times vanish and become unknown. Uh, I, I think... By um, come unknown, it means uh, become invisible, uh, unseen, I think is probably what Van Helsing meant there. Um, what do you notice here? What jumps out at you in this list again? Many things that we have seen, right? Um, we didn't have a numerical equivalency of his strength. We knew that his strength, as Jonathan said, must be prodigious. Uh, but, uh, you know, had the strength of 20 men, okay, that's something more than we um, 
than we knew before. Um, the necromancy business, right? That's, yeah, that's a kind of a big deal, right? That's totally new. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. So divination by the dead, Carolyn, that's, that, that is literally what necromancy means. You know, that when you have mancy at the end of a word like that, it means to, to, to divine or, or sort of magically gain information through whatever mechanism is at the beginning. Like, for instance, um, bibliomancy. Bibliomancy is the practice of using books uh, to gain information, not in the normal way, by reading them. But, like, if you do that thing where you say, like, uh, show me a sign, I will open a book, and the first word that my finger points to is query. So that's like a magic eight ball message to me, right? That, that If I did that and took that seriously, I would be practicing bibliomancy. Um, uh, there are lots of uh, there are lots of, of of kind of yeah exactly Tom Hillman says it's uh, related to the Greek word mantis meaning prophet yeah exactly um, so necromancy is the divination by the dead um, I, I I have to tell you I have no idea what Van Helsing is talking about here in large part because we never see Dracula doing it like it never comes into the story. Um, and all the dead that he can come nigh to are for him at command. What, in what sense are dead things his to command? We don't ever see him rallying a zombie army, for instance, so I don't see any reason for us to think that he can animate the dead. Of course, that would be one way to understand that, but I, I, we have absolutely no reason to suspect it. Um, we can see that he has, or at least he claims a kind of authority over the three vampire women, so the other undeads, to use Van Helsing's term, uh, that we see him around the other vampires, he does command, <laughs> though they're a bit froward, as we saw, right? That You know, his, uh, his command over them is far from absolute, right? They defy, in fact, his wishes, and although he comes down on them, right, and, and castigates them very sternly, um, they're clearly not, like, doing his, you know, sort of at his, his beck and call. Um, I, um, so, yeah, Carolyn asks, is it that Dracula absorbs the memories or the knowledge of the dead? Possibly, possibly. I'm, that seems, Carolyn. That seems to me a perfectly sensible way to interpret what Van Helsing is saying here. Um, again, my problem is we never see it happen. I, I don't really know, and this is why I'm really reluctant to commit myself as to what exactly this means, because this is one of the things in this catalog that we have. I can't think of a single piece of evidence uh, from the rest of the story that we can really use. Uh, to expand upon or or understand more clearly what he's getting at here, um, so uh, so yeah, I I um um uh, yeah, Carita says if that were the case, why not kill Jonathan and absorb his knowledge? Yeah, I mean, if it were simple absorption like that. Um, yeah, yeah, you'd think that would that would obviously be the mechanism, right? And that it would make a central feature of Dracula's own strategy for, you know, um, uh, fitting in in English culture, right? Is to 
you know, hang out with some English corpses, which he does in his defense, right? Uh, when he first gets there, that we see him in the graveyard. That is, but I guess the irony is, you know, half those graves up in Whitby are empty, so he's kind of a, it's kind of a bummer uh, when he got up there. You know, all those all those graves and nobody to talk to. I guess, but uh, but again, we really we just we really don't um, we really don't know. Uh, so I find this reference really tantalizing, but um, not awfully helpful um, when it um, when it comes to it. Um, a couple other things that I would uh, point to. Uh, and a, a, a couple of you were uh, somebody was asking about this. Okay. Uh, so yes, Mary, great question. What does he mean by the heart of him is not? Uh, this is just a Van Helsingism. He is brute and more than brute. He is devil and callous and the heart of him is not. Um, he just means he's heartless. I, I, I mean, that's... I, I, I don't think he is speaking biologically of Dracula here. I think he is speaking emotionally and spiritually. Again, following from, he is brute and more than brute. He is devil in callous. He is as callous as a devil and he is completely heartless. Um, uh, that's... Uh, so in the context of what he's just been saying, um, I understand that to be a, 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 a description of Dracula's character rather than any kind of biological uh, descriptor. Um, uh, okay. Um, again, his uh, directing of the elements, though only within his range. He says only within, within a limited range. Like the fog was only ar- about the ship, right? Um, it well, you know he didn't create like fog all all across the entire North Sea. Um, and also remember the suddenness of the storm and how that was remarked upon, right? Um, how violent the storm was at Whitby when he landed, and how very suddenly it came, uh, it came up, right? Because as the ship, as the Demeter began to come into the harbor, um, it, he surrounded it with a storm, and the storm suddenly burst upon Whitby uh, when it came within uh, their range. And yes, Nancy, I do believe that the um, uh, the uh, the. But, uh, uh, do meaner things just mean all animals? I don't necessarily think that it means all animals, but it does. But by meaner, he does mean lesser rather than uh, mean. The, the the modern sense of the word mean, the way that people, especially in America, use the word mean in the sense of cruel, um, that's that would be anachronistic. I I I'd have to somebody'd have to OED this for me, but I don't think that that was that word is used in that way in 1897. Uh, uh, if you are mean, it might... Uh, the, the the one definition of that word is like penny-pinching, like if you're mean with money, it means you're cheap. Um, uh, if... Uh, but usually mean just uh, uh, means... I keep being uh, self-conscious about using that verb. Uh, the definition of mean, uh, uh, the, the most common definition of mean is common, uh, low, basically. Um, so yes, the sort of more, uh, well, I was going to say humble creatures, but that makes it sound like a virtue. Um, the rat, the owl, and the bat, the moth, the fox, and the wolf, uh, not apparently dogs, Tom, as you say, yeah. Um, uh, yes, Arthur, you are absolutely correct that, uh, 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 Tolkien uses the word mean in that 
older sense on many occasions. Um, uh, 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 yes, uh, the children of Gondor will dwindle and dwindle and be ruled by mean folk. Um, uh, uh, Eowyn watching as uh, Theoden falls into a mean, dishonored dotage, for instance. Yeah, that, that's that's that same sense of mean uh, that. Um, uh, that he seems to be using here. Um, but, uh, okay, so... But it is interesting. There does seem to be a moral character to the animals as well. Um, rats and bats have a bad reputation. Owls, apparently, being lumped in with them too, and wolves. Um, foxes. Um, so we have, you know, these sort of animals associated with... Uh, sort of savagery and cunning and uh, again uh, so that seems to be a non-coincidental list um, uh, yeah all associated with the night Megan absolutely um, absolutely um, interesting Carrie Gross asks I wonder if being connected to meaner creatures uh, was a shame to the Count's sensibilities well, Carrie, he certainly doesn't think of the wolves that way, right? Listen to them, the children of the night, right? Um, it doesn't say that about moths or owls, but uh, uh, but he might have a little bit of a different opinion on uh, uh, some of uh, some of these things. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, okay. Yeah, let me go on, or we're never going to get anywhere. Um, we also have his weaknesses. How his powers are restrict. He can do all these things, yet he is not free. Nay, he is even more prisoner than the slave of the galley, than the madman in his cell. A conspicuous comparison, Van Helsing. He cannot go where he lists. He, he who is not of nature has yet to obey some of nature's laws. Not all, Arthur, as you were pointing out, um, uh, not necessarily things like... Oh, sorry, it was Carolyn was pointing this out. Um, things like gravity, you know, he seems to be able to defy, but not all. He is not immune to the laws of nature. Um, why, we know not. He may not enter anywhere at the first, unless there be some one of the household who bid him to come, though afterwards he can come as he please. His power ceases, as does that of all evil things, at the coming of the day. Only at certain times can he have limited freedom. If he be not at the place whither he is bound, he can only change himself at noon, or at exact sunrise or sunset. These things we are told, and in this record of ours we have proof by inference. When he says these things we are told, he's referring to the sort of legends and superstitions of older days that he's been researching, right? And pointing out that they can confirm many of these things um, based upon their own observations. Thus, whereas he can do as he will within his limit, when he have his earth home, his coffin home, his hell home, the place unhallowed, as we saw when he went to the grave of the suicide at Whitby, still at other time he can only change when the time come. It is said, too, that he can only pass running water at the slack or the flood of the tide. Then there are things which so afflict him that he has no power, as the garlic that we know of. And as for things sacred, as this symbol, my crucifix, that was amongst us even now when we resolve, to them he is nothing, but in their presence he take his place far off and silent with respect. 
There are others, too, which I shall tell you of, lest in our seeking we may need them. The branch of wild rose on his coffin, keep him that he may not move from it. A sacred bullet, fired into the coffin, kill him so that he be true dead. And for the sake, and, and as for the stake through him, we already know of its peace, or the cut-off head that giveth rest. We have seen it with our eyes. The cut-off head that giveth rest. I love that. Um, uh, okay, yes, Mary, it is interesting that he says that Dracula is silent with respect to sacred things. That, you know, to them he is nothing, and in their presence he take his place far off and silent with respect is interesting. Remember, that is actually kind of what we saw the first time, right? When he was lunging for Jonathan, who had cut himself shaving, and his hand touches the string of beads, the, the, uh, the rosary, right, on which the crucifix is hanging, and he immediately... Uh, is sort of snapped out of it and takes his place silent and with respect, right? Um, uh, okay. By the way, I love the sacred bullet thing. Love the sacred... Just I, 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 just, I love the way he tosses that out there. A sacred bullet fired in... <laughs> How do you get a sacred bullet? Like, who blesses bullets? By what process is a bullet... Does it need to be a special bullet? Uh, I mean, is it a silver bullet, or is it just a bullet that's been sanctified by some press... Is there like a... Is there like a... Uh, you know, an eighth sacrament for the blessing of bullets that I don't know about? I mean... Uh, it's just like the holy hand grenade, Arthur. I have no idea. Um, yeah, and Gerald is saying the same thing. Um... um I don't know. And uh, a couple of you were asking about Van Helsing's source of information. He's been doing research. Um, and remember, uh, um, uh, Seward had talked about him doing out doing uh, 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 research on, on, on witch and demon cures, right? Um, this is uh, this is what he's been. Um, this is what he's been doing while they've been gathering other information. He's been off. Uh, in archives doing research on ancient legends and traditions and superstitions about vampires. Um, uh, so, uh, anyway, yeah, well, okay. Um, so, I don't know the process of a sacred bullet, but I love the idea of a sacred bullet, and I'm so disappointed that Quincy Morris has not uh, blessed his bullets, because, man, like, uh, a Texan with as much manhood as Quincy Morris has, with a gun full of, with a, with a repeater with some sacred bullets, boy, he would be a vampire slayer to be reckoned with, I can tell you. Um, but anyway, <laughs> going back more to, more seriously to, uh, <laughs> praise the Lord and pass the ammunition, says Veronica. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, anyway, okay, okay, okay. Um, I, Going back to some of these other things again, we can see how how some of these things touch on stuff that we s observed earlier, but didn't necessarily uh, fully understand or have the information fully to parse. One was um, that um, you know we we uh, the 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 not entering until invited thing, right? We get that confirmed here as we've seen it uh, as we've seen it before. Um, the running water. Right, he can only cross water at the change of the tide, right? At the slack or the flood, at 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 the turn of the tide at, at high tide, or at the turn of the tide at low tide. Um, remember the disembarking issue, right? And why, when we were talking before, why didn't he just turn into a bat and fly on, as soon as England was in sight, right? And just fly across because he can't cross 
uh, uh, running water, and the sea counts as moving water. He can't cross it except at particular times, and he is in, in he's he's in contact with the sand uh, when he jumps off the bow of the ship. So he's not crossing water at all. Um, he has to have the wind drive the ship onto the shore. So again, that's one of those things that um, comes to be that, that we can kind of understand a little bit more clearly after we learn about this here. Um, <clears throat> now, notice, therefore, also a larger pattern that we begin to see here. Uh, um, is it moon-related, Veronica was asking? I don't really know um, if there's something special about the moon exactly. I mean, we do have that connection to the moon, or that at least in imagery that Renfield says, but I don't make too much of that. Um, one thing that I do think that we can see is uh, transitions. It seems so vague, right? But but when you look at this, is the pattern that we can see. Um, he his he has limited freedom at particular times. What are the times at which he's free? At night, of course, right? Um, but during the day, his power is restricted. He's not destroyed by daylight. He's not destroyed by sunshine, right? There's nothing, nothing so, so dramatic as that. But he is restricted. He is not free during the day. Except when? At noon and at sunrise and at sunset, right? At those precise points, he has a limited and increased freedom. But at other times during the day, he can't, um, he can't, change. He can't change it. So, he can't change his form to an animal. He can't make himself bigger and smaller. He can't turn himself into a gas. He can't pass through cracks of walls and, uh, uh, you know, chinks in boxes and things like that. Um, And yes, James, this is why he had to stay a wolf once he jumped off the ship. Exactly. Um, uh, And killed the dog as the wolf. Yes, I assume so, James. Exactly. Um... Though that was also after dark, so I think I bet he could have changed back in, into it, but presumably wanted to kill the, uh, you know, kill the dog in canine form. I think he could have changed back because it was wasn't it after sunset? Yes, yes, because the painters were painting the sunset, right? Remember uh, that that's what, how that article began. The description of the sudden storm began with a description of how all the painters were out because it was such a gorgeous sunset right before the storm hit. So the storm does hit right after sunset. So he could have transformed. Um, and exactly, Tom, that's why Midnight isn't mentioned, because he's, he's, got, he's got freedom of movement and freedom to transform himself at night. Remember, we saw this as well when uh, he got stabbed in the back by the first mate on board the ship at night, and his the knife just passed right through him, right? Because it's night. Whereas during the day... Not at noon or sunrise or sunset. He gets a shovel to the face. It leaves a mark, right? Which is still there. He still has a scar uh, uh, from that. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good, good. Um, So what do we make of this pattern? You know, this sort of these transitional times. I don't know. I mean, one of the things, of course, that we've seen um, 
in Van Helsing's language, remember we talked about the kind of novelty of the language, right, was the, the whole undead uh, image, uh, the, the coining of the undead, of, you know, of the word undead. Um, and, you know, that kind of conversation, which from a bedside manner perspective is so horrifying that he has with Arthur that I can't stop laughing at even now. Uh, I go no further than to say that she might be undead, right? Um, you know, as, remember Arthur sitting there saying, like, you know, not dead, not alive. What You know, he can't, he's trying to figure out what, you know, are you saying that she's alive? Has she been buried alive? Oh, no, no, no. No, uh, she might be this other thing, right? This other liminal, not alive, not dead thing. So there's something kind of, you know, not exactly transitional, but vampires are a marginal kind of thing, right? They're 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 neither one nor the other. They're they they're sort of in between, and um, so it's interesting that it's associated with these kind of transitions, uh, these transitional times. And Megan, you are right that the transition in time is associated with um, uh, with death, I think. Um, that uh, um, the captain knows when sunrise comes because he's a sailor. Um, but there's somebody, Jonathan, I think, who talks about, um, you know, this thing that that uh no who is it who talked about this i think it was jonathan who said that when people are near death they usually die at exactly at dawn or exactly at sunset at one of those transitional times that's like that's sort of the moment of death i can't remember exactly where that was but i remember somebody saying it um mina was it mina at whitby talking about that Maybe. Anyway, um, uh, so um, I think it might have been Mina. I'll have to look that up. But um, anyway, so the association with death, I think, uh, I think does does kind of work. Um, one thing that we have to note as we go by, and of course this will come up and be relevant later on. Of course, immediately after this description, we really wish they had had a stock of sacred bullets in stock, right? Because this is when uh, Quincy Morris quietly excuses himself from the meeting, goes around outside the house, and <laughs> shoots in through the window with his pistol. Uh, uh, solving, trying to solve the whole vampire problem in a, a, a very Second Amendment kind of way. Um, sorry, I fear I have alarmed you. I shall come in and tell you about it. A minute later, he came in and said, It was an idiotic thing of me to do, and I ask your pardon, Mrs. Harker, most sincerely. I fear I must have frightened you terribly. But the fact is that whilst the professor was talking, there came a big bat and sat on the window sill. I have got such a horror of the damned brutes from recent events that I cannot stand them, and I went out to have a shot, as I have been doing of late of evenings, whenever I have seen one. You used to laugh at me for it then, Art. I love this image of Quincy Morris bat hunter, right? Um, uh, that's uh, that's really great. And I, yeah, to me, Gerald, the take home is exactly the same as what you're saying. Our heroes are completely clueless. I mean, they have just been sitting there talking about him and his powers and what he can do, and then, you know. Quincy Morris has just said, like, yeah, a huge bat was just sitting on the windowsill, like, as if it were listening to what we were saying in the room. And they're all just like, 
Huh. Anyway, where were we? And they just pick up the meeting, right? Uh, as if nothing had happened. Um, yeah, yeah. Yana is equally amused that he doesn't just whip out his gun and shoot him from the inside. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it would have been even more dramatic, possibly. But um, anyway, yeah, no, the, the obtuseness uh, of our heroes uh, is, um, is, is deeply frustrating at times and the way in which they simply don't react to a lot of things is um is a little bit um yeah i know margaret it's with a lady present right but i mean is it any better to shoot the bullet into the room where the lady is than to shoot the bullet out of the room where the lady is i'm not really sure there myself um i don't know what victorian ladies would would say, you know, if we ask Miss Manners about this, what she would say is better, but, um, anyway. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about, let's talk about Mina, because we have, before we can, before we can come back to my feminist argument, uh, we, we really need to, uh, uh, we really and, and James, I agree. I, I I also think that he went out because he was trying to sneak up on the bat. Um, that perhaps he thought that if, if the bat saw him draw his piece, uh, that it would f- that it would fly away and he'd lose his chance at it. Uh, probably, probably. Um, <coughs> um, <laughs> yeah, Nancy says that Miss Manners in a Vampire Story is something I want I, I want to read now. Uh, actually, Nancy, I think that could be hilarious. I can I can imagine uh, a a very funny string of uh, letters to Miss Manners by like various minor characters from Dracula uh, about certain circumstances. You know, like uh, uh, about uh, you know I just. Uh, I just donated blood to my best friend's fiance. Like, kind of, should I mention that or not? You know, there's so many excellent Miss Manners questions uh, that really could come out of this. But anyway, let's get to um, uh, let's get to let's get to Mina and uh, and her suffering because uh, it's really awful, and we just we have to we have to go through this here. Okay. This is Mina's diary. She's still keeping her diary. Of course, the men are no longer reading her diary because she's out of the discussion, but she's still faithfully keeping her diary. And this is the description of the fateful night that they go over to the Count's house. The mist grew thicker and thicker, and I could see how it came in, for I could see it like... I could see now how it came in, for I could see it like smoke, or with the white energy of boiling water, pouring in not through the window, but through the joinings of the door. It got thicker and thicker, till it seemed as if it became concentrated into a sort of pillar of cloud in the room, through the top of which I could see the light of the gas shining like a red eye. Things began to whirl through my brain, just as the cloudy column was now whirling in the room, and through it all came the scriptural words, a pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. Was it indeed some such spiritual guidance that was coming to me in my sleep? But the pillar was composed of both the day and the night guiding, for the fire was in the red eye, which at the thought got a new fascination for me, till as I looked the fire divided, and seemed to shine on me through the fog like two red eyes, such as Lucy told me of in her momentary mental wandering when on the cliff the dying sunlight struck the windows of St. Mary's Church. Suddenly the horror burst upon me that it was thus that Jonathan had seen those awful women growing into reality through the whirling mist in the moonlight, and in my dream I must have fainted, for all became blackness. 
black darkness. The last conscious effort which imagination made was to show me a livid white face bending over me out of the mist. I must be careful of such dreams, for they would unseat one's reason if there were too much of them. Yeah, no, this isn't a dream, right? Um, no, not a dream at all. She dismisses it as a dream. Why? Why does she do this? Um, remember, she's writing this down after she's been bitten, right? And thus, she is now, at least to some extent, under Dracula's control. We've seen this already with Lucy, that there's a constraint upon her. She can't say. She tries to hide the marks on her throat. She doesn't talk about it. She can't talk about it, right? Um, I, um, uh, and with Renfield too, James. Yes, exactly. Um, I interpret, therefore, Mina's description here as basically sort of her indirect, both her, her sort of processing of this traumatic event and also of her kind of indirect um, using sort of the dream as a kind of uh, as, as a kind of evasion here. Um, yes, Mary Dracula has been invited into the class, but we'll get to that next. I mean, after we talk about Mina here for a couple slides. Um, the pillars are very biblical. Now we need to make sure that we get this. Um, because again, notice we, and we talked about this last time I was about to say, it seemed like weeks ago. It was weeks ago uh, that we talked about this. Um, but that that uh, very consistent uh, biblical Christian imagery that, uh, that Stoker uses uh, in describing Dracula in the way that he is sort of poised as the, uh, uh, the sort of the, 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 the kind of anti-God, anti-Jesus here. Um, what, is the, what is the reference? Does, can, can somebody explain that, that reference to the, uh, the pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night? What's that all about? Exactly, Veronica, yes. It, that it's referring to the guidance of the Israelites out of Egypt. So after Passover, uh, when the Israelites uh, left Egypt and are heading out into the wilderness and they're on the way to the Red Sea and beyond... Um, the uh, God goes before them and guides them in the shape of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they are being led through the desert, right? Um, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, <laughs> James says it's actually from Dune. Yeah, we did have that reference in Dune also. Uh, yeah, exactly. Notice her thought here. Um, she makes the comparison, right? Dracula in his gaseous form here, taking form in the room, is being compared to the pillar of cloud, which itself is interesting, right? And once again, this sort of miracle, this sort of miraculous manifestation of God, we have this direct parallel between, you know, what... But again, it's, it's sort of a mockery, right? And that the question that she asks, was it indeed some such spiritual guidance that was coming to me in my sleep? Yeah. It is, um, but it's not leading you out of slavery through the wilderness and towards the promised land. Uh, it's doing the other thing, right? Leading you from your place of happiness into the wilderness and ultimately into slavery. Um, so again, yes, exactly, James, guiding her in the wrong direction. So 
once again, as we've seen so many times before, taking that uh, that that scriptural idea, that divine thing, and reversing it uh, for for Dracula here. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, now we know what has really happened here, right? He's been invited in. Why is he coming through the door? Because he's not coming in from outside, right? He's coming in through the house because he's been invited in. We see him coming in through... When is this happening again? Make sure we're all remembering this, as it was probably weeks ago that you read this. What's going on at this time? Why is Mina alone? What's happening? Exactly. The guys are the guy, the guys are at Dracula's house, right? Exactly. So just as as the men folk have gotten together and are currently invading Dracula's home, uh, Dracula has uh, come over here and is now uh, biting Mina for the first time. Um, on the third night of her suffering here. Um, is when they catch him. They being Van Helsing and Seward and Arthur and uh, uh, Van Helsing and Quincy, of course. Um, <clears throat> when, the, when the four of them burst into the room, and here's what they see. By her side stood a tall, thin man clad in black. His face was turned from us, but the instant we saw, we all recognized the Count in every way, even to the scar on his forehead. With his left hand, he held both Mrs. Harker's hands, keeping them away with her arms at full tension. His right hand gripped her by the back of the neck, forcing her face down on his bosom. Her white nightdress was smeared with blood, and a thin stream trickled down the man's bare breast, which was shown by his torn-open dress. The attitude of the two had a terrible resemblance to a child forcing a kitten's nose into a saucer of milk to compel it to drink. As we burst into the room, the Count turned his face, and the hellish look that I had heard described seemed to leap into it. His face flamed red with devilish passion. The great nostrils of the white aquiline nose opened wide and quivered at the edge, and the white sharp teeth behind the full lips of the blood-dripping mouth champed together like those of a wild beast. Okay. Um... This scene is often by uh, academics who talk about Dracula. This scene is often called uh, the rape of Mina. I strongly dislike that term. Um, what do we see here? Uh, and the reason I dislike this term um, is it's not that there's nothing sexual going on here in a sense there is, and we'll come to that in the next slide, but um, there is an overall sort of sexual context in a certain way of thinking about it. Um, but the scene that they're perceiving here, and in particular the way that it's described, is explicitly not a sexualized act. And I think that if we think of it in sexualized terms, as I've said before, as people always do about Dracula. It's just, um, they seem helpless uh, to resist that. But, um, but that's not the imagery that we get. What is the imagery that we get? How is this described? Do you see? What's, what's going on here? 
notice the comparison. We get an ex- we we get not just a um, not just a, a simile, but an analogy, right? Exactly, James. The force feeding of the kitten, right? That is, it's not a sexual act that's being performed. It's a nourishment act, James. Exactly. It's like Lucy with the baby, right? Um, Lucy cradling the baby to her breast as if she were breastfeeding it but instead she is sucking its blood. Instead of giving of her body to nourish and, and supply its life, she is taking from its body in order to nourish herself, right? And to take from it and to, uh, and, and to kill it. And um, anyway, so, yeah, Yana, it is, again, more like a parent-kid thing. Um, though here it's, even that is sort of a parody of that, right? Um, again, the simile, the attitude of the two, and attitude means posture, Right, um, that, that when uh, ad, the word attitude is used in 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 nineteenth-century literature, it usually means like uh, like I, you know I was sitting in a particular attitude. Right, it means how I'm how I'm holding my body, uh, generally not like their, um, you know, attitude in the modern sense of that, like the kind of attitude they were displaying. It means the postures, like the scene, uh, the his holding the back of her head, the way that he's forcing the back of her head into the liquid uh, that's running down his chest, or his blood, which is running down his chest, uh, had a terrible resemblance to a child forcing a kitten's nose into a saucer of milk to compel it to drink. Um, so it is like a parent-kid thing, Yana, but you'll notice it's not even just a direct parody of a parent-kid thing, right? It's like a thing which is itself a parent... Like, when a, if a child takes a kitten's face and shoves the kitten's face down into milk in order to try to, like, take a drink, kitty. No, drink, kitty. I mean, it, I, it, I can easily imagine a child doing this. Not out of, like, natural sadism, but just wanting, it wants the kid, the, the, the kitten to drink, right? So it, so it forces it down. That itself is a kind of parody of the parent-child relationship, right? The child, who doesn't know what he or she is doing, right? Um is trying to feed the kitten, right? Um, but it's forcing the kitten down, right? So even it's um, even that is uh, is uh, um, already a kind of dysfunctional nourishing parental kind of relationship, but it's definitely in that context of nourishment, not of sexual interaction between the two of them uh, that we are instructed to think about this. Now, as for why is he really doing what he's doing and what effect will her drinking his blood instead of him just drinking her blood, which he's now done three times as he says, right, when he uh, when he comes to bite her that night he, he's just fed upon her before he does this to her. And he says this is not the first time nor the second that your veins, veins have quenched my thirst, right? So this is the third time that he's already bitten her. Why the blood? What different effect does that have? We'll talk about that next time, because we'll learn more about it next time. Um, So I'm not going to worry about that right now, exactly what it is that he's doing and what he's hoping to accomplish by doing this specifically. We don't have enough information yet at the end of chapter 21 uh, to really talk about that. So we'll save that. But what what we do get is sort of context for this, right? How to understand this, how to sort of fit this into the pattern of vampirism that we have seen 
before, right? And again, that's why I dislike calling this a rape. Of course, in one sense, it's quite like a rape. I mean, the Mina's helplessness and the way in which she's being violated in her, um, uh, you know, against her will, and uh, uh, you know, with uh, with 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 physical violence. I mean, I'm not saying it isn't always unlike a rape, um, but I dislike that term and thinking of this scene in rape terms um, because it, it, again, it oversimplifies. Just as as there is uh, a very common impulse to oversimplify vampirism in Bram Stoker to just, you know, vampire uh, uh, you know, vampire equals sex thing. Um, we um, uh, uh I, I, yeah, a couple of you are talking about Raptus as kidnapping or, or, or stealing, um, and that he is, you know, uh, committing a, a rape, a Raptus in that sense. That's true, but that's not the sense in which that's used by the modern critics who talk about it that way. Um, they're talking about sex, uh, and that's what I get a little bit frustrated by. Um, look at Mina's account. Then he spoke to me mockingly, and so you, like the others, would play your brains against mine, and you would help these men to hunt me and frustrate me in my designs. You know now, and they know in part already, and will know in full before long what it is to cross my path. They should have kept their energies for use closer to home, whilst they played wits against me, against me, who commanded nations and intrigued for them and fought for them hundreds of years before they were born. I was countermining them. And you, their best beloved one, are now to me flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood, kin of my kin, my bountiful winepress for a while, and shall be later on my companion and my helper. You shall be avenged in turn, for not one of them but shall minister to your needs. But as yet you are to be punished for what you have done. You have aided in thwarting me. Now you shall come to my call. When my brain says, Come to you, you shall cross land or sea to do my bidding, and to that end, this. With that, he pulled open his shirt, and with his long, sharp nails opened a vein in his breast. When the blood began to spurt out, he took my hands in one of his, holding them tight, and with the other seized my neck and pressed my mouth to the wound, so that I must either suffocate or swallow some of the... Oh, my God, my God, what have I done? What have I done to deserve such a fate? I, who have tried to walk in meekness and righteousness all my days... God pity me, look down on a poor soul in worse than mortal peril, and in mercy pity those to whom she is dear. Okay. Um, yeah, Nancy, the, I agree that the flesh of my flesh language is incredibly creepy here. Um, yes, uh, as several of you are pointing out, Nancy and Rachel and uh, Philip... Um, this is uh, and Arthur. Um, this is uh, this is marriage talk, right? This is Genesis chapter two. This is Adam and Eve. Um, it's in uh, you know that language. Uh, flesh of my flesh um, uh, is in is in the marriage vows, the the English marriage vows. So um, uh, so yes, uh, he uses an explicitly. He uses explicitly marital language to describe what he's doing, right? Notice how this pulls together 
all these different themes from the book, all these things that we've been tracing, almost everything we've been tracing, all kind of come together right here, right? Vampires and what vampire, what vampirism is like, and all the different kind of networks of images, um, the 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 all the the the, the Jesus and, and and biblical stuff, um, and then at the same time, all the love and marriage stuff. Marriage has been a big theme from the time when uh, Jonathan is thinking about Mina and what he owes to her, and. Uh, and we get Mina and Lucy thinking about uh, their fiancés and their marriage and uh, you know Mina's very solemn letters upon the occasion of her marriage uh, you know that she sends to Lucy which she Lucy doesn't uh, um, no wait Lucy does receive those Um, anyway all this talk about marriage and what marriage is like and we also get communion stuff here, Nick, absolutely. Um, and all these things, and they all come together, right? Marriage itself, of course, is also that union, which is on the one hand a physical union, but it's also a spiritual union. It's also the dominant metaphor for the union between God and humanity uh, throughout the entire Bible and especially the New Testament. Um, so again, we come, we, we connect through to the Jesus imagery here. Jesus is the bridegroom. We've gotten marital imagery, spiritualized marital imagery about Dracula from the, you know, remember the bridesmaids delight the eyes that await the coming of the bride. So he's the bride instead of the bridegroom in that case. But um, even, again, even Renfield's language suggested all this. Um, so anyway, it's, it's, it all, it all kind of comes together um, uh, here. And we see once again, the way in which the vampiric state, right, is a subversion, a parody of that holy bond. He is making Mina his wife, right? But in a in this twisted, perverted sense, right? Again we see vampirism as this as this travesty of that which is good and holy, this inversion of what is good and holy, the taking of those things and um in this, remember that phrase that I was harping on last time, devilish mockery, right? Taking that and twisting it. Um, yes, uh, yeah, a couple of you are pointing out the wine press imagery again. Yes, that is also, uh, that is also very uh, sort of biblical, but not in a marital context, right? Again, you know, the, the idea of uh, um, uh, the wine press is associated with the wrath of God uh, in a couple places. Um, it's that's not a marital image, right? But again, that kind of that particular sort of hodgepodge really does illustrate how kind of awful um, uh, the, this inversion is, right? And again, this is why this is why I get so frustrated with all of the interpretations of this book which just stop at vampirism equals repressed sex right um <clears throat> you know it's just the uh the the victorian you know fear about talking about sex and whatever um it's not that it isn't connected with sex it's just that that's only one small part uh of what is really a much more interesting and much more uh, uh much more complicated situation I just find that particular fixation sadly narrow um, and really kind of missing most of the point. Um, anyway, back to... Um, um, yeah, interesting. Tom says, by taking it back to the Garden of Eden, 
in the usage of the marriage language, he takes it back to the fall. Um, yeah, well, really, he kind of it was pointing back to the pre, right, to that that the prelapsarian union um, of Adam and Eve. But yeah, we're certainly uh, kind of reminded of that um, in there. Anyway, one just to come back briefly to the question of the to sort of what is what's actually happening. I don't want to pass up the evidence that we do get there about what he says. Uh, when my brain says come to you, you shall cross land or sea to do my bidding. Bidding. So apparently, um, it is. It has something to do with giving him increased sort of mental command. You know, uh, uh, command over her. Right. Um. But uh, okay, so. And I love the image how when he says how he was countermining them, right? Uh, that's a military image, right? If you're if you're besieging somebody, right? So they've got walls. You can you can dig mines underneath them because they can't you know they can't defend their walls against a mine. If you can tunnel right under their walls, but one way to defend yourself if somebody is is mining you is to countermine them, right? You dig down underneath their mines and you cave their mines in from the bottom and destroy them. Right, um, so that's what that's what Dracula is doing. He is countermining them in that sense. All right, uh, let's leave Mina for a little bit. We'll come back to Mina, but we've got to talk about Renfield because this is Renfield's this is uh, Renfield's big hour, right? Um, and uh, and and we need to say goodbye to Renfield properly. So uh, so let's talk. Let's 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 again. Let's do some more. What really happened with Renfield here? Okay, so this is. <clears throat> right before this is uh, while they're still gathering. This is at the end of last uh, <laughs> last week's, you know, the last class's reading, which was ever so long ago. Um, just as Mina and Jonathan are arriving at the uh, at the asylum, and we get those several times when Doctor Seward is interviewing uh, Renfield and slowly coming to some belated conclusions about him. I found Renfield sitting placidly in his room with his hands folded, smiling benignly. At the moment, he seemed as sane as anyone I ever saw. I sat down and talked with him on a lot of subjects, all of which he treated naturally. He then, of his own accord, spoke of going home, a subject he has never mentioned, to my knowledge, during his sojourn here. In fact, he spoke quite confidently of getting his discharge at once. I believe that, had I not had the chat with Harker, and read the letters and dates of his outbursts, I should have been prepared to sign for him after a brief time of observation. As it is, I am darkly suspicious. All these outbreaks, all those outbreaks, were in some way linked with the proximity of the Count. What, then, does this absolute content mean? Can it be that his instinct is satisfied as to the vampire's ultimate triumph? Stay. He is himself zoophagous, and in his wild ravings outside the chapel door of the deserted house, he always spoke of master. This all seems confirmation of our idea. However, after a while I came away. My friend is just a little too sane at present to make it safe to probe him too deep with questions. He might begin to think, and then... So, I came away. I mistrust these quiet moods of his. So I have given the attendant a hint to look closely after him, and have a straight waistcoat ready in case of need. Um, all right. So what's happening here? What's happening here? What's going on with Renfield? Is he being devious? Or is he serious? Can we believe him? What he's saying here? 
Yeah, Mary, it does seem like finally he's learning, right? I agree. It's nice to see him doing a little critical thinking, finally, right, after his all of his resistance before. Um, remember to this point, all we've gotten from Renfield has been his reactions to the proximity of the Count, right? As, as, uh, as Seward says, when the Count was near, he was all worshipful and breaking out to go grovel at the door and that kind of thing, right? Um, when he left to go bite Lucy, right? Um, to go, you know, spend some quality time up at the Western House, um, Renfield gave up, Right? Uh, no hope for me now, right? All over, he says, right? If I want, I'll have to do it myself. And he starts collecting flies again, right? And then, uh, time, you know, when it's all put together in chronological order, as Jonathan and Mina do as soon as they arrive uh, at the uh, at the asylum, um, we see that as soon as Lucy is having one of her good periods, right? Again, when uh, uh, when Dracula is gone, apparently for several days in a row, um, Renfield throws away his flies. Again, right? So that's the correlation that we've seen so far. Um, we have absolutely no reason. In fact, we have very positive reason to believe that Renfield has not been bitten yet. Um, we know that because we will see Dracula still asking to be invited in. He's never come in to the house yet. Um, and Renfield hasn't left, apart from that those two times that we know of, and he was under observation then. He wasn't bitten by the vampire at that time. Um, so, we know that... Uh, uh, now, Sarah, you're right. Uh, Seward is not inclined to take him seriously, given his past mood swings, um, and he has some reason for that, right? Even knowing what we know. Knowing what we know... Do, what do we think? What seems the likeliest explanation for this behavior on uh, Renfield's part? It's tricky, this one, isn't it? This is not the time when he asks the knight that they're going over to Dracula's house. We'll get there, but that's not this one. Right? This is days before that. Renfield has never met Mina, He's not invited Dracula in. None of that stuff has happened. Penny, you're right. We do see him being loyal to the Count. Right? Um, do we have any reason to think that he's not being loyal to the Count here? I don't think that we do. Right, we saw him give up when he thought it was hopeless. Right, but what? What's one of the very first things we learned about uh, Renfield? One of the th remember uh, the little digression that Doctor Seward goes on about centripetal and centrifugal uh, forces. Right, um, when selfishness, when when his own self and his own good is the central, you know, is the is the focus of of someone's madness that's better right because you you know what they're about 
right? And there are limitations because they're looking out for themselves, so they won't put themselves into danger. Whereas if their attitude is centrifugal, right, if it's outwards from the center, if they are selfless in their attitude, they might do anything, right? <clears throat> Renfield, so Renfield's selfishness, Dr. Seward said, and again, way back in our very first introduction to, the, to, the, to Renfield's case, <clears throat> Renfield's selfishness is described as one of the things which is likely to serve a, a, a protection to others, right? And we have seen nothing from Renfield that doesn't suggest that that still holds true, right? Um, the fact that he is serving a master, you might say, well, that's not selfish, right? He's serving somebody else, right? <clears throat> no, remember the thinking of the loaves and the fishes when he thinks he's in a real presence, right? He's still doing it for himself. He's doing it for what he can get. <clears throat> and he goes over to Dracula and begs, you know, you will not, uh, you know, uh, you will not pass me over, will you, in the in your distribution of good things? <clears throat> He's still ultimately out for the good things for himself. And when um, uh, when the count goes away, he gives up and goes back to trying to do it himself. Right? Um, when the men come who appear to be taking Dracula's stuff away. Um, which he clearly does not understand, and we were talking about that scene as demonstrating that he's not, you know, in active consultation with Dracula at all. Um, but we also saw he was he was fighting. He said he's fighting for my lord and master, but he's also saying, "I will not let you murder me by inches." Right? He's he's fighting not selflessly for Dracula, but selfishly for his own interest. Right? He's, "I won't let you rob me," he says to them. Right? He understands it in his own terms. Again, we've seen nothing from Renfield leading up to this, which suggests that that's changed. Therefore, I would conclude that he's being devious here. Um, that he's saying he wants to go home. This is another stage of Renfield's um, att attempting to cozy up with the Count, right? He'll, it'll be a lot easier for him to go and, and, and serve the Count and get what he wants from the Count if he's not locked up there, right? He seems to... I don't know if he's concluded that maybe he's just not going to be able to get Dracula's attention from over here, right? He tried with the running away and going to the chapel door, but it's he can't do that all the time, right? So, um, uh, So this seems to be another... Ploy. I'm perfectly willing to believe that this is a ploy. Um, you know, he's a little too sane at present. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but c clever, you know, clever. Yeah, exactly. Tomas says he, he may be crazy, but he's not stupid. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, now, soon after this, we get his conversation with Mina, his first conversation with Mina, when Mina asks to go meet him. And <clears throat> Dr. Seward speculates, I wonder if it was Mrs. Harker's presence which had touched some chord in his memory, because he changes when he's talking to Mina. If this new phase was spontaneous, or in any way due to her unconscious influence, she must have some rare gift or power. And then later on he's explaining, <clears throat> Renfield, of course, why, I myself am an instance of a man who had a strange belief. Indeed, it was no wonder that my friends were alarmed and insisted on having me put under control. 
I used to fancy that life was a positive and perpetual entity, and that by consuming a multitude of live things, no matter how low in the scale of creation, no matter how mean, right, one might indefinitely prolong life. At times I held the belief so strongly that I actually tried to take human life. The doctor will bear me out that on one occasion I tried to kill him for the purpose of strengthening my vital powers by the assimilation with my own body of his life through the medium of his blood, relying, of course, upon the scriptural phrase, for the blood is the life. Though, indeed, the vendor of a certain nostrum has vulgarized the truism to the very point of contempt. Is not that true, doctor? Uh, I nodded assent, for I was so amazed that I hardly knew what either to think or say. It was hard to imagine that I had seen him eat up his spiders and flies not five minutes before. Looking at my watch, I saw that I should go to the station and meet Van Helsing, so I told Mrs. Harker that it was time to leave. She came at once, after saying pleasantly to Mr. Renfield, "'Good-bye, and I hope I may see you often under auspices pleasanter to yourself,' which to my astonishment, to which to my astonishment, he replied, "'Good-bye, my dear. I pray God I may never see your sweet face again.' May he bless and keep you. Okay, by the way, a couple of people have asked me what is Renfield talking about when he says the vendor of a certain nostrum has vulgarized the truism to the very point of contempt. I think he's talking about this. Clark's world-famous blood mixture. Uh, for the blood is the life, it says at the top of its advertising here. Uh, uh, this is a, it was a, a nostrum is a, a medication, usually a quack medication uh, that's being sold as some kind of cure-all. And indeed, uh, you'll notice what Clark's blood mixture is meant to cure, right? Everything from cancerous ulcer ulcers and, and glandular swellings uh, to uh, blackheads or pimples. Uh, right, scrofula, scurvy, skin and blood diseases, and sores of all kinds. It is a never-failing and permanent cure. Um, this is, um, uh, yeah. So this is, uh, I, I believe, the certain nostrum. It was advertised. I think it was invented in the 1860s, uh, and it was very widely advertised. Um, uh, whoever Clark was. He spent a fortune on advertising and doubtless made it all back, um, as this was, uh, this was apparently very popular. Um, but this The Blood is the Life was his slogan, uh, you know, his lead advertising slogan here, and these ads apparently were everywhere. So, it, it doesn't notice how he, uh, Stoker doesn't mention it by name, right? He just calls it a certain nostrum, right? Um, but uh, everybody reading the book would doubtless know exactly what he was doing, know that he was talking about Clark's blood mixture here. So anyway, that I, I think that's the nostrum being referred to here. Um, okay. Um, uh, now what do we see in Renfield? Back to Renfield here. Um, what do we see in Renfield here? On the one hand, what we get in this passage is the fullest explanation of Renfield's own perspective on his madness, right? Um, he speaks of it objectively. Um, Dr. Seward remarks at how odd the uh, objectivity is, right? Because, I mean, he just... As, as uh, Dr. Seward characterizes it later on, his mouth, at the time that he's saying this, is still nauseous 
with the flies. It's still like full of fly and spider, right? Like spider legs sticking out the corners of his mouth as he's saying this stuff. Um, so the objectivity is um, is uh, very sudden if it's real, right? And not just put on. Um, and yeah, Rachel, we do find out why he's in the si- in the asylum in the first place. That his friends insisted on his being put under control, right? It is no wonder that my friends were alarmed. Um, I so he he talks about his concept that life was a positive and perpetual entity, and that he could indefinitely prolong his life. So we see him spelling out what we were concluding already from what we saw earlier on, which is also kind of nice. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you're right, Karina, he's not exactly self-aware, but it is kind of remarkable that he can kind of talk about things this way. Um, uh, and, um, no, Mary, I don't think we have any reason to think that he thinks that Dracula has any um, plans for Mina at this point. Again, remember, we, we've seen for sure that he is not in communication with Dracula, Right. Um, he doesn't know what Dracula's plans are. He's not privy to any of that stuff. If so, he would not have made a big deal out of the moving of the boxes. Remember, I mean, the irony there, right, of course, is that if Renfield hadn't burst out and beaten up the carters who were taking away those boxes, we wouldn't even know that they were taken away, right? That is, there would be no record of that. Because, of course, uh, Dr. Seward is up with Lucy in town, at, in London at this time, and uh, at, at the Western Row House. And his second-in-command, who's left in charge of the asylum, would certainly not have reported, yeah, so today some random guys came and took some random boxes from the neighbor's house. Like, that never would have come up uh, in the record at all, if not for the fact that Renfield had gone out and pounced on them. Um, so, anyway, uh, it, it, it's ironic. There. But again, uh, Mary Zoe's saying, it shows that he clearly doesn't know Dracula's plans. Um, so no, I think we have no reason to think that his response to Mina is related to Dracula's plans or Dracula's own, own intentions. They seem to be spontaneous reactions to Mina herself. Dr. Seward himself suspects that this sudden change in him is due to her. Like it, it, He is spontaneously changed in response to her in some way. And he thinks that if it's true, she must have some rare gift or power, right? Um, and his, I agree that, um, uh, uh, James, that his affection for Mina at the end, you know, goodbye, my dear, I pray God I may never see your sweet face again. Um, notice, what really strikes me about that is not just the reference to God, which again does correlate with some things that we've seen, right? The 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 when people start talking about God, like Jonathan does over the course of the first four chapters, right? But it's not just that. What really strikes me about this is he's being selfless, right? I pray I may never see your sweet face again. Why? He's not being mean to her, right? He seems genuinely affectionate as he says it. So why would he pray that he would never see her face again? Because it would be in her best interests for him not to see her again. Exactly, James, he might be tempted to hurt her. He's thinking of her safety. He's thinking of her good, not his own. Right? 
this seems to be the first genuinely, like, demonstrably unselfish thing we've seen Renfield. We've seen his moods change and things go up and down, but the thing that's been consistent all the way through has been his selfishness. That's unselfish. That's a change. That's a serious shift in Renfield's... Even if it's only temporary, even if it's only mild, um, it's still a real shift and a very important shift, right? Um, So, okay, that's... This is why, remember I said when he was being all docile and quiet and asking to go home before, I wasn't buying it, um, because this changed... Nothing had changed yet. Now, now, when he makes that request a second time, the request to go home, now it's different, right? Um, This is the night... This is the fateful night, right? This is the night that the boys are going over, uh, you know, the, the, the manly men are getting together to go over to Dracula's house, and of course we've already seen what uh, is going to happen. You know, the spiritual guidance, right? The pillar of cloud and fire is going to be headed to Mina's room later this night, but before they can leave the house, Renfield calls them in and makes this request. Then I suppose I must only shift my ground of request. Let me ask for this concession. This is after they've denied that he can be sent away. They can be dismissed, uh, you know, sent home from the from the um, the asylum. Then let me ask for this concession, boon, privilege, what you will. I am content to implore in such a case, not on personal grounds, but for the sake of others. I am not at liberty to give you the whole of my reasons, but you may, I assure you, take it from me that they are good ones, sound and unselfish, and spring from the highest sense of duty. Could you look, sir, into my heart? You would approve to the full the sentiments which animate me. Nay more, you would count me amongst the best and truest of your friends. Again he looked at us all keenly. I had a growing conviction that this sudden change of his entire intellectual method was yet was but yet another form or phase of his madness, and so determined to let him go on a little longer, knowing from experience that he would, like all lunatics, give himself away in the end. <clears throat> see the cues here? Right? We get a couple set of cues here. One, following on the pattern that we just saw, his em- his own emphasis uh, that what he is asking is unselfish. And honestly, I take this as almost a tacit admission that when he asked to go home before, it was selfish. Right? That first slide that we looked at, that was a selfish request. He was doing that for his own ends. Now, when he's asking to be sent away, he's not asking for himself. This is this is a this is a he has good reasons, sound and unselfish, that spring from the highest sense of duty, right? But he can't explain. That's the other thing that he seems to be trying to to I am not at liberty to give you the whole of my reasons. Why not? Why isn't he at liberty to give all of his reasons, right? Um This is something they could put together, right? But they don't. Um, Dr. Seward is instead quick to think in terms of generalities, right? Yeah, Neo, it does sound like Dracula has some power over him. Yes. Um, Yes. 
when he's refused. Dr. Seward expects him to fall back into sullenness as before, but he doesn't, right? Instead, he becomes desperate. Let me entreat you, Dr. Seward. Oh, let me implore you to let me out of this house at once. Send me away how you will and where you will. Send keepers with me with whips and chains. Let them take me in a straight waistcoat, manacled and leg-ironed even to a jail. But let me go out of this. You don't know what you do by keeping me here. I am speaking from the depths of my heart, of my very soul. You don't know whom you wrong or how, and I may not tell. Woe is me, I may not tell. By all you hold sacred, by all you hold dear, by your love that is lost, by your hope that lives, for the sake of the Almighty, take me out of this and save my soul from guilt. Can't you hear me, man? Can't you understand? Will you never learn? Don't you know that I am sane and earnest now, that I am no lunatic in a mad fit, but a sane man fighting for his soul? Oh, hear me, hear me, let me go, let me go, let me go. A passage, this passage I find one of the very most moving of the entire book. Um... Interesting, yeah, Tom Hillman points out that he emphasizes, I may not tell. Uh, not I cannot tell, but I may not tell. Right? I, I have been denied permission to tell you. Um, yes, yes. Um, remember the timing. Has Dracula been invited into the house yet? No, he's not. He's not. He will be invited into the house in like an hour from here. Right? Um, Renfield tells later, Dracula has been appearing to him. He has seen Dracula through the windows. Dracula has made him promises. Dracula has sent him bugs to eat. Right? Um... He has, of late, in the last few days, gotten into communication with Dracula. He's not privy to Dracula's plans. Dracula's not sharing with him, right? Dracula's not taking him as a colleague. But Dracula has already been bribing him, right? Um, He is being asked to be sent away, it would seem, based on what we know later on, because he feels that he's going to give in. He knows what Dracula wants. Dracula wants to be invited into the house, and he's not done it yet. But he doesn't think that he can hold out. Um, he is not a lunatic in a mad fit, but a sane man fighting for his soul. This is Renfield completely lucid. Even more lucid than he was with Mina. Because with Mina there was still some posturing to it. right? He was pretending to speak about his condition as if it were in the distant past while the flies and spiders were still... his breath still smelled like flies and spiders. Right? Um, So there was some false posturing to what he was saying before. Here, he understands clearly what's going on. 
And I think he understands why. What's at stake? Remember, it was Mina that awakened the unselfishness in him. And he seems to be still trying to protect her. Um, I didn't believe it the first time, right? Um, a few slides ago, right? The first time he asked to go home, I think he was being devious and still selfish. Here, you can tell he's being unselfish. He's not asking to be let go. He's not part of a plan. Let them take me in a straight waistcoat, manacled and leg-ironed even to a jail? Right? And by the way, G-A-O-L is pronounced jail. That's the old spelling of that word. Um, a lot of modern readers mispronounce that. Um, I've been reading a lot of 18th century novels on LibriVox lately, and most of the LibriVox readers mispronounce that word when they come to it. Uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, this is... Uh, the, it's that Being taken away manacled and leg-ironed to a jail is not in his best interest, right? His, his purposes are not going to be served by that, right? He is sacrificing him, willing to sacrifice his freedom. He's not asking anything for himself, but he is asking to be taken out of this, right? Um, you don't know what you do by keeping me here. You don't understand what the consequences are going to be. Um, um, okay, Peter, I think he... Peter's thinking about the contrast wise... Dracula needed an invitation here when he didn't in Lucy's house, but he did. Lucy invited him. Um, we saw he didn't enter initially, right? He was calling her to the window. Um, he only came in, but we do see him enter, right? He enters when the wolf breaks the the window. Um, so if he's never been in the house before, and it's not obvious that he has, um, that may be his first time into the house. But if he hasn't ever been in the house before, he does enter that night. I um, mean, he's been invited. Lucy's been opening the windows to him. Right, so um, people who are under his control can invite him in. It seems, um, but he still does have to be actually invited in. Um, so it, it's still, I think, a big, uh, um, a big, uh, a big deal in that sense. And yeah, uh, uh, Rico, I, I agree. His repeated mention of souls is also interesting. I mean, it's uh, it's another one of those things that seems to me a uh, an indication of his sincerity, right? Um, you know, I, yeah, it's hard to hear him say these things and not um, and not be believed. Um, now, remember, this is still before the invitation has happened, right? This is, he's not doing this in remorse. It makes it even more poignant, right? This is not him feeling bad about having invited Dracula in, this is him fearing that he is going to give in. Knowing that he's not stable, right? And that his selfish his selfish, mad desire for life for himself is likely to reassert itself and when it does he's going to say yes and let Dracula in. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's look at his conversations with Dr. Seward after this night, when he has invited Dracula in. Um, this is another one of those biblical, uh, images that, um, uh, 
that he, yeah, Veronica, yeah, he did beg Dracula to come, right? Uh, you know, he, he, he went over to the you know chapel door and was groveling and calling him master and worshipping him from afar and, and all that stuff, right? So what's changed? Why is he not eager to... Why is he begging to be taken... Mina changed, right? Mina changed him. Mina, the, that first spark of unselfishness we saw was inspired by Mina. Um, and he's been thinking about it since he met with her. And he is trying to protect Mina. I, that's that's the only variable. Right? It's the only thing that's changed in 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 Renfield's experience is his meeting with Mina, and that seems to be the difference now. Why he has shifted from, or at least at times, you know, has these moments when he's thinking unselfishly rather than thinking selfishly as he always had. Okay. Um. Oh no, oh no, I want no souls. Life is all I want. Here he brightened up. I am pretty indifferent about it at present. Life is all right. I have all that I want. You must get a new patient, doctor, if you wish to study zoophagy. This puzzled me a little, so I drew him on. Then you command life? You are a god, I suppose? He smiled with an ineffably benign superiority. Oh no. Far be it from me to arrogate to myself the attributes of the deity. I am not even concerned in his especially spiritual doings. If I may state my intellectual position, I am, so far as concerns things purely terrestrial, somewhat in the position which Enoch occupied spiritually. This was a poser to me. I could not, at the moment, recall Enoch's appositeness, so I had to ask a simple question, though I felt that by doing so I was lowering myself in the eyes of the lunatic. And why with Enoch? Because he walked with God. I could not see the analogy, but did not like to admit it. Okay, let's do better than Seward. Not hard to do on a lot of occasions, I know. Um, and yes, Penny, Renfield is directly paralleling Dracula with God here, absolutely, as he was before, right? In the way that he was calling him master and praying, to, you know, worshiping him and everything, yes. Okay, so uh, explain Enoch's appositeness, right? Well, Enoch is an Old Testament character who appears very, very briefly. There are two verses, or is it three, in Genesis chapter 5, which discuss Enoch. Um, uh, but he's very significant for all that. Um, all that we learn about Enoch was that Enoch walked with God... And Enoch was not, because God took him to be with him. So Enoch is taken bodily up into the heavens to be with God. Um, so he only gets like the two verses in Genesis 5, but he's really important because he's one of only two people in all of history, all you know, recorded in the Bible, who are physically translated, is the technical term, uh, uh, into heaven to be with God. Uh, who's the other one? Trivia question. Elijah, very good. Arthur, you've got it, of course. Elijah, who was taken up in the chariot of fire. Um, uh, Enoch it gets a less spectacular send-off, but again, we don't really know anything about it. But he walked with God, and he was not uh, because uh, he was taken to be with God. So, uh, okay, he is insofar as concerns things purely terrestrial, somewhat in the position which Enoch occupied spiritually. 
What does that mean? So, yes, um, Penny, as you were saying, so in this parallel, Dracula is as God, Renfield is as Enoch, right? He is walking with God um, in a terrestrial sense, right? That is, concerning earthly things, concerning life. Notice, he's distancing himself from the spiritual stuff, right? Um, He's not uh, especially interested in... uh, He's not concerned with God's especially spiritual doings, right? He's not thinking about spiritual things. He's only thinking... it's, It's just... it's life, right? He wants no souls. Life is all I want. In other words, he's kind of thinking about eternal life without thinking about eternity, right? Um, He's thinking about immortality without wanting to think about eternity. Um, As we saw before, vampirism is this inversion, this perversion of resurrection, right? The resurrection of the dead. Um, You shall have life and have it more abundantly. Sort of, right? Um... Yeah. Um, exactly. Terrestrial immortality. Mick, exactly. He's not taken away from Earth. He's just going to live on Earth immortally, right? He has all the life that he wants, but he wants no souls, right? He gets disquieted with the whole spiritual angle of things. But he walks with God. Enoch in tradition pleased God, you know, was you know, served God well and, and you know, walked with him in the sense of, you know, had his life in close accordance uh, to, you know, God's will and God just took him straight to be with him, right? So, Renfield and Dracula, they're like this, right? Renfield and Dracula are BFFs now. Has Renfield been bitten by Dracula? Um, Dr. Seward eventually tumbles to the idea that oh, good, the, the, the Count has been to him, right? Okay, you think? Right? Okay. Um, but, uh, but Tomas, I agree, nothing does seem to imply so. Absolutely. Um, uh, we see his leeriness about the spiritual side, right? I don't want an elephant soul or any soul at all, he said. For a few moments he sat despondently. Suddenly he jumped to his feet, with his eyes blazing and all the signs of intense cerebral excitement. To hell with you and your souls! Oh, oh, oh little, little Freudian. Anyway, why do you plague me about souls? Haven't I got enough to worry and pain and distract me already without thinking of souls? He looked so hostile that I thought he was in for another homicidal fit, so I blew my whistle. The instant, however, that I did so, he became calm and said apologetically, Forgive me, doctor, I forgot myself. You do not need any help. I am so worried in my mind that I am apt to be irritable. If you only knew the problem I have to face, and that I am working out, you would pity and tolerate and pardon me. Pray do not put me in a straight waistcoat. I want to think, and I cannot think freely when my body is confined. I am sure you will understand. 
He had evidently self-control, so when the attendants came, I told them not to mind, and they withdrew. Um, yeah, James, isn't it astounding how long it took Seward to get there? It really, it totally is. Um, again, I think that that for, to hell with you and your souls, um, he's just cussing, right? I mean, that's just a swear word that he's using there when he said to hell with you and your souls. But, uh, ooh, golly, isn't that kind of the, the source point, the, the, the source spot there, Renfield, right? The whole going to hell business, right? Um, yeah, what might be the spiritual consequences of your, you know, uh, n- you know, your new, the blood is the life, fancy nostrum for immortality, right? Your, 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 your do-it-yourself uh, terrestrial immortality, Um <laughs> Gerald Michael says that Dr. Seward makes Barlowman Butterbur look like a swift thinker. Uh yeah, yeah, perhaps. You're right. He does have a slower pate than 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 Butterbur, I think. Um anyway. But here's the question. What's the problem that he's working out? What's he thinking about? What problem does he have to face? Mina, I agree. Philip Philip very eloquently says, Mina, yes, I think that Mina is the problem. Yes, as uh, 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 Matthew... Hirschenroder says, uh, if he achieves immortality, it will be at the expense of others. Absolutely. Um, he's already invited the Count in. That's happened. Um, we know by the dates. That's already occurred. But, uh, this is one of the things, Tomas, coming back to the point that you made before, I don't think that Dracula has bitten him. Yet it's not a done deal. Um... he still has some deliberations to do. He thinks he's got the answer. He's got an in, right? He's like Enoch now, right? He and Dracula are BFFs. They, they, uh, he, he, he's not worried about life, right? Um, he's done with zoophagy. Except there's a problem. It's not just life that he's going to be eating, right? Um, which is what zoophagy means. But he's going to be um, eating the souls as well. Right. Um, wait. So, Tom, what would that be? Uh, uh, psychophagy, I guess. Right. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, the, the, so so on the one hand, there does seem to be a general question about what are the real consequences of this. Right. Him actually thinking it through. But there's also the um, uh, there's also the 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 question, I think, about Mina, that unselfishness, right? Um, pneumophagy. Yeah, uh, I, that, that one works better than psychophagy, uh, uh, Matthew. But, uh, good, anyway. Um, let's come to Renfield's deathbed. Uh, oh, and by the way, in case you... Un- uh, yes, 
Dr. Seward and Dr. Van Helsing actually do drill a hole in Renfield's skull. Um, when they're operating, they're tree finding. That means to drill a hole in their skull to alleviate the pressure uh, from underneath their tree panning him. That's um, it's almost as good as brandy, uh, but uh, just. <laughs> I just want to make sure a couple of people were asking, yes, that is in fact, they did in fact bore a hole through his skull in order to help him out there. Um, uh, <laughs> Tom says it always worked for me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Anyway, okay, all right. <clears throat> quick, doctor, quick. I am dying. I feel that I have but a few minutes and that I must go back to death or worse. Wet my lips with brandy again. I have something that I must say before I die, or before my poor crushed brain dies, anyhow. Thank you. That was... It was that night after you left me, when I implored you to let me go away. I couldn't speak then, for I felt my tongue was tied. But I was as sane then, except in that way, as I am now. I was in an agony of despair for a long time after you left me. It seemed like hours. It seemed hours. Then there came a sudden peace to me. My brain seemed to, to become cool again, and I realized where I was. I heard the dogs bark behind our house, but not where he was. Okay, so he sees Dracula approach this coolness that he feels, I think is interesting, this sudden peace, right? Um, Mina hears... She records in her diary, overhearing, quote, praying on a very tumultuous scale coming from Renfield's room. That seems to be what he's doing when his mind is uncool. <laughs> James Pace is speculating about opening a hole in the brain to apply brandy directly to the brain for its curative purposes. That seems very, um, uh, that, that, that seems very plausible. Anyway. So, um, what does uh, Dracula say to him? How does this conversation, which he so dreaded, right, dreaded his response to, how does it go? Then he began to whisper, Rats, 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 hundreds, thousands, millions of them, and every one a life, and dogs to eat them, and cats too, all lives, all red blood with years of life in it, and not merely buzzing flies. I laughed at him, for I wanted to see what he could do. Then the dogs howled, away beyond the dark trees in his house. He beckoned me to the window. I got up and looked out, and he raised his hands, and seemed to call out without using any words. A dark mass spread over the grass, coming on like the shape of a flame of fire, and then he moved the mist to right and left, and I could see that there were thousands of rats, with their eyes blazing red, like his only smaller. Remember when um, Arthur brought his... Uh, he called the dogs with the dog whistle that he brought with him, um, and all the rats disappear, and uh, they're all like, oh, well... That was pretty easy, right? Well, it turns out the rats, of course, were summoned away at this time. Um, good. Joyce is noticing how he's raising rather than calming the storm again. Good. Um, he held up his hand and they all stopped. And I thought he seemed to be saying, All these lives I will give you, I and many more and greater, through countless ages, if you will fall down and worship me. 
and then a red cloud like the color of blood seemed to close over my eyes, and before I knew what I was doing, I found myself opening the sash and saying to him, Come in, Lord and Master. Very good. Veronica and Joyce right away got the biblical reference. Um, I, I've told you guys before that I used to teach a class on uh, on, on the Bible in order uh, in in my old English department um, as a as an intro class to get students ready to like actually get biblical references when they came to them in books. Um, and I use uh, I used uh, I used Dracula on every single test I gave, like the Old Testament test, the New Testament test, I, I, uh, the final exam. Uh, I never 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 gave a single test without Dracula on it. This was one of my favorites. Um, Yes, this is from Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Um, when Satan takes Jesus up to a high place and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, all this I will give you uh, if you will fall down and worship me. The if you will fall down and worship me is the direct quotation. Um, notice, this is the the sort of final confirmation of that whole demon-devil thing we were looking at from the very beginning, right? We see Dracula himself almost consciously playing the role, right? Casting himself as Satan here. Um, now, notice he doesn't necessarily say it, right? Uh, or it's unclear. Um, there's a little bit of vagueness about that. Renfield says, I thought he seemed to be saying, right? Does that mean that those words are Renfield's words that he's sort of supplying? Um in his interpretation of Dracula's actions, does that mean that Dracula is himself saying this or conveying these words to him in some way, either directly or psychically? Um, you know, I'm not really sure, but uh, but in any case, the whole Dracula as Satan thing, which has been, uh, you know, um, suggested pretty strongly from the beginning, uh, is uh, uh, is pretty thoroughly confirmed here. By the way, did you catch his pseudonym? Did anybody notice that? Uh, when he purchases the house in, uh, in London, um, the, the house that, uh, uh, when, he, when he goes to Mitchell, Sons, and Candy, um, the, uh, the, the land agents, and purchases that house that, uh, that they won't initially tell Jonathan about, remember? Yes, Mr. DeVille. Yes, exactly, Mr. DeVille. A foreign gentleman named Mr. DeVille. Um, uh, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, we see him self-consciously playing this role, right? Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, just, of course, like Cruella DeVille, as Arthur and uh, Sarah are, uh, are, are, are pointing out. Exactly, exactly. Um, Anyway, okay. So notice the nature, the nature of the temptation here. He is explicitly inviting uh, Renfield to kind of, you know, Renfield's been worshipping him long and afar off, right? Renfield has been in the sort of proto-vampire mode with his zoophagy stuff from the beginning. Dracula is playing on that. First, in explicitly zoophagous terms, right? Hey, the doctor wouldn't give you a cat. I'll give you a cat. I'll give you dogs. I'll give you rats. I'll give you all kinds of things. But there's more to it than that, right? Um, and more and greater over countless ages, right? I'll give you life. 
I'll give you as much life as you want. This is the temptation. This is the bribe that he offers Renfield. You want life, right? You've asked for this. I'll give it to you. How does he know? Why is Dracula showing up at Renfield's window? The, I mean, how many lunatics are in this asylum, right? He could have come to any number of windows. Why does he come to Renfield's? Well, back to what we were talking about before. Why, why Lucy, right? Why, um, uh, you know, why does he pick... The, the, there seems to be some that respond to him, right? We saw Renfield responding to him before. He seems to be aware of this, right? He seems to, to be able to... He, he knows. <clears throat> he, can, he, he can sense in some, in some way, it seems. Um, he can sense... Renfield's desire, Renfield's affinity with him, and he comes and he, uh, yeah, like calls to like Mick exactly. It's 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 just like that. Um, this is the temptation that Renfield was trying to avoid. This is why, and he he says I I didn't quote the whole passage, but he explains that in in the days earlier this had happened. Um, he had seen Dracula before, and Dracula had sent in flies and, and you know, great blowflies and death's head moths, right? Um, so he knew that Dracula had noticed him. Dracula didn't notice him before, right? He was there at the chapel door, and Dracula didn't notice him. Dracula's noticed him now. He knows Dracula's noticed him. He knows that Dracula is on to what he wants, and he knows that if Dracula comes to him with this temptation, he's likely to give in. That's why he asks to be thrown in jail, in you know manacles and leg irons. Um, so is he offering vampirism to Renfield here? Yes, it seems so. I mean, it certainly seems so. Is he giving it to him? Is he biting him? No, I don't think he is. Because when he's invited in, he leaves and goes to Mina's room um, and does not seem to bite uh, Renfield himself by his own description. When Mrs. Harker came in to see me this afternoon, she wasn't the same. It was like tea after the teapot had been watered. Here we all moved, but no one said a word. He went on, I didn't know that she was here till she spoke, and she didn't look the same. I don't care for the pale people. I like them with lots of blood in them, and hers had all seemed to have run out. I didn't think of it at the time, but when she went away I began to think, and it made me mad to know that he had been taking the life out of her. Um, yeah, Nancy, the tea in the teapot is a great simile, isn't it? Um, remember, this is the problem that he has to solve, right? Um, the mere abstract what could be the eternal or spiritual consequences of pursuing a career, a long-term career of vampirism... Uh, you know, escalating from zoophagy to vampirism, um, that wasn't his chief problem, and that's it's related clearly. Um, but it's after he meets Mina again that he begins to think. Right, his first meeting with her affected him, changed him, led him to try to thwart Dracula and to thwart himself, even right by asking to be sent away. But he did give in. Right, and at first seemed confident in that, right? Remember with his Enoch talk and, you know, Dracula and I are BFFs and I've got nothing to worry about. <clears throat> but then he does have something to worry about. And Mina is the one who really gives him uh, 
you know, more, much more prominently the stuff to worry about, right? It was always about Mina. The change that happened, it's Mina that sort of brought Renfield around from happy, cheerful proto-vampire, right, uh, into someone who is ultimately rebelling against Dracula and fighting him. Um, not to mention being the only freaking person in the house who notices that she's really pale, almost like she's lost lots of blood. Gosh, I, I wonder if we should pay any attention for that, to that. No, I guess not. So when he came tonight, I was ready for him. I saw the mist stealing in, and I grabbed it tight. I had heard that madmen have unnatural strength, and, I, and as I knew I was a madman, at times anyhow, I resolved to use my power. I and he felt it too, for he had to come out of the mist to struggle with me. I held tight, and I thought I was going to win, for I didn't mean him to take any more of her life, till I saw his eyes. They burned into me, and my strength became like water. He slipped through it, and when I tried to cling to him, he raised me up and flung me down. There was a red cloud before me, and a noise like thunder, and the mist seemed to steal away under the door. So he resists. Is he merely resisting physically? I can't... I mean, he talks about madmen having a natural strength, but in what sense can you grab mist tight, right? Um, I don't, yes, good, uh, but Joyce and uh, Rickle were both talking about the capitalized he's that we get, um, the, the deity comparison, absolutely, Joyce, you're right. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, okay. I can't imagine it's merely physical strength. He's talking about physical strength on the one hand, and he is very strong, as we've seen before, you know, in his fight with the Carters. But, um, but there seems to be more than physical strength going on here. What we seem to have here is a, uh, a interesting, yeah, uh, Tom is remembering Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord, there's no explicit reference, like there's no total dead giveaway that that's what we're supposed to be remembering here. Um, but um, but I like the parallel. I mean, I think that that's, that's really kind of interesting. Tomas, it clearly is a struggle of wills. Um, what we see, what we seem to be having here is um, a de-invitation, <laughs> right? Uh, him saying, I, I deny you permission to come in, right? He doesn't mean for her, for him to get in. Um, but at this point now, he's already been invited. Dracula can come in and he can merely overpower him. And he does, right? He has authority over him with his eyes, right? When he looks him in the eyes, he has to obey. Um, his, you know, his strength becomes like water. When Dra- you know, He can't defy Dracula to his face. But he does resist him, and he does make um, uh, he do, yeah, Arthur, I was also looking for some kind of leg injury thigh injury or something with the Jacob wrestling thing and I've, 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 there have been a bunch of times when I've thought about Jacob wrestling and, and, and this tried to see any kind of clear reference there, but I, I've never been able to really make that work in a way that I could be super confident about either. 
I never found like the, the any any real telltale thing here. But anyway, um, <clears throat> plus, I mean, it, though it is intriguingly opposite, right? Instead of Jacob holding, you know, uh, getting his wrestling hold and saying, "Bless me," right? Um, he's uh, he's instead merely resisting him and trying to thwart him. Um, uh, yeah, Arthur is also th uh, thinking he was uh, with. Dracula being parallel to Satan and to the serpent was uh, sort of seeing, wondering if anyone's heel was going to get injured. Yeah, yeah, Arthur, I can understand that too. Though, yeah, I don't. Nobody's nobody. Nobody gets hurt in the heel at any point either, <clears throat> which seems to me a, not surprising in the end. That is to say, we get all this spiritual stuff and all this biblical language, but it never gets explicitly, um, it never gets explicitly allegorical, right? Um, just paralleling, uh, just establishing these parallels. But it's, I mean, again, it's all about this this network of images to sort of describe the essence of vampirism, right? To tell us what what vampirism and what Dracula is really all about. It gives us a way to understand that. But the story itself doesn't become an allegory. Um, he is Dracula is connected with demons and with Satan. But he is not interacting with others, you know, in that way. Anyway, um, I should let uh, I should let people go here soon. Actually, I'll let you guys go now. Um, but uh, because I, the next topic is to uh, come back to the Stokers feminist stuff, but I'll save that. We'll 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 start with that next time. Uh, that actually, in some ways, that'll kind of work better. Um, but. Um, yeah, so we'll we'll come back and we'll do the we'll do more of the feminist thing next time. So read through chapter twenty four. It's our our penultimate reading assignment for next time, um, and uh, we we're we're going to complete the Dracula course now. We should be on schedule from here on out. Uh, I hope for no interruptions of uh, of uh, of our time. So. Thanks very much, everybody, uh, for your patience and bearing with me here, and thanks for joining me. Good night, everybody.